Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Legendary Beaujolais producer Georges Deboeuf dies aged 86. Ongoing record-breaking bushfires in Australia raise concerns for grape growers. New association of wineries formed to promote minimal intervention winemaking in Chile. Brazilian producers to receive government support to stay competitive amid increased international competition. And as ever, our wine of the week. So first for our week in wine, or couple of weeks actually, over the holidays there was a great deal of imbibing, and while we enjoyed some outstanding wines, we also enjoyed quite a few cocktails. We created our own inventions, including the much-perfected martini, which was, of course, gin-based, with a white rather than a dry vermouth. The vermouth was Berto, an absolutely delicious and irresistible vermouth from Italy, and then with a touch of Pacheron as well, a Basque slowberry liqueur we brought back from Spain. It's always fun inventing cocktails, especially when you have high-quality ingredients to play around with and good company. And we seem to be in line with global trends, as data from the Wine and Spirit Trade Association shows that sales of liqueurs in the UK, anyway, totaled around 1.3 billion pounds, the equivalent of 1.71 billion US dollars, in 2019. So in volume terms, around 43 million bottles were sold last year, representing a 4% increase on the previous high set in 2018. So those cocktails and other assorted drinks helped us get through some of the bad news over the holiday period. A discussion continued over the looming tariffs, which, as we have previously discussed on Wind Up Weekly, could see the US impose 100% tariffs on European wine. This is still all speculation, but it would be disastrous for the wine industry, not just in Europe, which has other markets around the world, but also in the US, with retailers, restaurants and consumers hit with unnecessarily higher prices for iconic and important wines from around Europe. We don't know if it'll happen yet. In the meantime, we'll continue drinking and learning about wine. Yes, that's right. I actually signed up just this last week for the Italian Wine Scholar by the Wine Scholar Guild. I'm more excited about the Spanish edition that's new to the program. However, that doesn't start until March, so I'm focusing on Italy for now, which I must confess is one of my weaker areas of my comprehension of classic wine regions. Italy is split into two units, which illustrates just how vast the subject of Italian wine is. How many grape varieties are there, Matthew? Getting on for 400 indigenous varieties. Wow, that's a lot to learn. So I'm starting with Unit 1, Wines of Northern Italy, and I'm looking forward to it as it's a format I've never tried before, a 15-week online course that is instructor-led via webinars. So it starts at the end of the month, so I'll be sure to update you with how I get on. Yeah, and I look forward to uh, following your studies. And we also both registered for ProVine, which is coming up this March in Dusseldorf in Germany. And many of you wine professionals listening uh, will be familiar with that, and we may even see you there. So if you see us, say hello. Uh, I haven't been before, but Katie, you have. Yes, the last time I attended was in 2013, so it will be great to be back and see how it's changed. It has built a reputation for being the international wine trade fair to attend. So also should be a great opportunity to taste wines and meet folks from around the world. And it's always a good source for some newsworthy stories as well. So shaping up to be a busy 2020. 
Yeah, and I have just one thing to add to that. Last week, I bought The Wines of Journey, Germany by Anna Kriebel, German MW based in the UK. And it's an extremely good introduction and overview, but quite deep as well, into The Wines of Germany. And she talks about how Provine was set up in the 90s to um, revitalize the German wine industry and focus on quality rather than quantity. So a very important uh, event that we're going to be tasting. Now on with the news. So sad news this weekend that George de uh, legendary Beaujolais producer, died aged, aged 86 um, of a stroke on Saturday. Um, an extremely important producer in Beaujolais, really helping uh, resurrect Beaujolais' uh, reputation and uh, standing in the wine world in the 20th century from being a, kind of in the shadow of Burgundy to being an extremely important and well-known region and responsible for creating the style of Beaujolais Nouveau and really drawing attention to the region. Yes, and I particularly liked the quote from Dominique Perron, president of Inter-Beaujolais, the regional trade association, who said that Mr. de Boeuf was responsible for raising the Beaujolais flag all over the world. He had a nose, an intuition, a step ahead of everyone. And I met George de Boeuf a few years ago uh, back in Manchester, an extremely charming uh, and well-dressed gentleman and very passionate about Beaujolais. Uh, some would argue about his influence on Beaujolais being a little bit negative and promoting it as uh, a fruity, youthful wine rather than a serious wine, but certainly he raised the profile and was very passionate about the wine. And it's not just Beaujolais, because he also uh, made wine in other areas of France. And I think despite the controversy over how he really promoted Beaujolais through Beaujolais Nouveau, he arguably did great work for the region as a whole, because now, uh, at least here in the U.S. market, you see even the higher quality, the the crews of Beaujolais really uh, taking hold of the market, and maybe that wouldn't have been possible had Beaujolais Nouveau not paved the way. Slightly strangely, I was teaching Beaujolais on Saturday, pretty much at the time that he died, and we having a very good discussion about Beaujolais and the styles of wine, and part of that discussion was his influence on Beaujolais, and so it almost feels like a coincidental tribute that we were talking about him, and tasting Georges de Boeuf Beaujolais Nouveau at pretty much the moment he passed away. So uh, rest in peace. <laughs> Dominating news headlines over the holidays have been the bushfires raging in South Australia. With nearly 6 million hectares of land burnt, six times more than in the California fires of 2018, the fires have seen mass evacuations and millions of animals killed, with New South Wales the worst affected, and Victoria also saw 800,000 hectares of land burnt, hitting regions such as King Valley near Rutherford. In Adelaide Hills in South Australia, a third of all vineyards were burnt, which will force replantings. So for the wine industry, these fires come right in the middle of of the growing season, and we'll have to see exactly what damage they have caused to grapes and the quality of the upcoming 2020 vintage. Bushfires in Australia are not new. In fact, they're a naturally occurring phenomenon that Australians have always had to deal with. But it seems that they are getting worse, and these current fires look like they're almost impossible to deal with. And besides the human and material cost of the fires, grape growing and winemaking are going to be difficult this year. Despite the research carried out into the effects of fire and smoke taint on grapes and wine, there's only so much that can be done. 
Yes, in general, perhaps the most important thing that can be done is to learn how to prevent and contain these fires in the future. Unfortunately, Australia's Prime Minister thinks these fires have nothing to do with climate change. It's hard to deal with a problem that political leaders refuse to admit exists, as we know full well here in California. Yeah, and it seems in this uh, podcast, Wind Up Weekly, we just keep talking about fires. Not just Australia, not just California, but Chile. There's fires in South Africa. A lot of Mediterranean climates suffer from these fires. So politicians need to do something about this. They're in a position where they can do it, and they're just not. And we're seeing the human consequences of that. News from Chile, where producers are making a strong effort to be more sustainable and to intervene less during the winemaking process. The large producer Concha Itaro has had over 4,000 hectares of forest land certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, an international organization that monitors more than 200 million hectares of forest in over 80 countries around the world. Concha Itaro's forests have been credited for low intervention management, which helps sustain the forests and the habitat. As a result, Concha Itaro can label their wines as eco-friendly. Meanwhile, a new association was announced in Chile called Chile Desnuda, or Naked Chile. It's been formed by Luca Hodgkinson, who runs a consultancy firm called Wildmakers, who support organic and biodynamic producers, and the new organization comprises of five small producers. The aim is to promote low-intervention winemaking, with the wines unable to have more than 50 parts per million of sulfur. The term, desnuda, has been conceived as an alternative to natural wine, as Hodgkinson believes that there's a feeling that you need to have a defect to be a natural wine. Likewise, he dislikes the word sustainable, as he feels it doesn't really mean anything. He hopes the new organization will help eliminate the use of herbicides and vineyard applications so that the wines actually taste like where they're from and consumers are not unwittingly putting chemicals in their body. He also stressed that Chile's dry climate makes organic winemaking easier, so it's something that should be encouraged. And I think both these developments are important and interesting, because Chile has had a culture of almost fast food winemaking, getting the wine out there as quickly and inexpensively as possible, rather than focusing on quality and individual character. So these developments in sustainability and low-intervention winemaking, led by both large and small producers, indicates a significant shift in attitudes to grape growing, winemaking, and wine consumption, which will hopefully lead to an improved standard of quality. Yes, well, as we've talked about again and again, is the uh, global kind of standard for quality in wine is getting higher and higher. And I think Chilean wine producers are now catching on that they need to change some things in the vineyard and in the cellar to keep up with the times. And that consumers want something that comes directly from the source without too much intervention. Brazil may not be a country associated with quality wine, but the government has pledged a fund to help the domestic wine industry grow. Echoing the ongoing global conversation around the subject of tariffs, Brazil's trade agreement with other South American countries, signed 30 years ago, allows wine from countries such as Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay into the country tax-free. Likewise, the trade deal being negotiated with the EU will allow European wines into Brazil free of import duty. Brazilian producers feel that these trade agreements put them at a disadvantage. Of the 124 million liters of wine consumed in Brazil annually, only 14 million were domestic. 
with Chile accounting for half of all the wine sold in the country. The fund created by the government will invest $32 million over the next five to ten years to support the industry. Well, in many ways, it's very welcome that the Brazilian government wants to support the domestic wine industry and um, help it grow. The problem is, I haven't really had any good Brazilian wine, and I think that's what they need to be focusing on, because then if they have quality wine, then they can compete with other South American and European countries. Well, maybe if they have a little more money to work with, they can focus on improving uh, tactics and practices in the vineyard as well as in the cellar to improve that quality. Still a lot of experimentation going on and trying to find out which places in Brazil are best. Um, the general consensus is just the other side of the Uruguayan border is best, uh, but they need to focus on what styles of wine they're going to be making because the red wines just kind of lack a bit of uh, structure. But there's quite a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon and Tanat planted there, but then there's the sparkling wines, but they're competing with a very uh, competitive global market. Well, we'll see if this increased competition kind of pushes them ahead in, in making some improvements. They have to justify the money the government's going to give them. And now for our wine of the week, which is Katie. Well, no surprises that over the holiday period, we drank plenty of champagne. And so to pick a highlight just shows how good this wine is. It is the J.L. Vergnon Murmur Blanc de Blanc Brut Nature Premier Cru Champagne. And we actually enjoyed this wine with Tyler Canfield, my nephew, who's here with us in the studio today. And he will be playing a little bit of music for us as we uh, finish. But first of all, just to talk about the wine. It's 100% Chardonnay, no dosage, and no malolactic fermentation. So this wine is completely dry, which allows the acidic structure to express itself. It's from three Premier Cru villages, uh, Vazou, Villeneuve, and a little bit from Le Menil. And it's mostly based on the 2013 vintage, aged for three years on the Lees. And what we loved about this wine was its precise elegance and razor-sharp acidity with a light floral fruitiness and leasy texture. So a really sophisticated but extremely drinkable champagne. Cheers to that! So thank you for listening. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. I'm Tyler Canfield. Join us next week for another wind-up. Cheerio! Cheerio!